Welcome to Making Connections, a WMNT series on diversifying our future. Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. This episode is part of WMMT's Making Connections News, a series of stories highlighting the opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities. This week, we'll hear about a new report that highlights 20 projects across Appalachia that would reclaim abandoned mine lands and create new economic opportunities in the process. These case studies and similar efforts could be funded by the Abandoned Mine Land Pilot Program and if passed by Congress, the Reclaim Act, and they have the potential to jumpstart a new deal in Appalachia. The report is titled Many Voices, Many Solutions, Innovative Mine Reclamation in Central Appalachia. It was prepared by the Reclaiming Appalachia Coalition, which consists of Appalachian Voices in Virginia, Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Kentucky, the Coalfield Development Corporation in West Virginia, Rural Action in Ohio, and Downstream Strategies, a regional economic development think tank. In this show, we will hear from two folks who had a part in developing the report, Eric Dixon from the Appalachian Citizens Law Center in Whitesburg, Kentucky, and Adam Wells with Appalachian Voices' new economy program in southwestern Virginia. I interviewed them together at Appalachian Voices' office in Norton. We will also learn about projects in Virginia, Kentucky, and West Virginia that are featured in the report as examples of innovative reclamation and economic development projects. Here are Eric Dixon and Adam Wells. My name is Eric Dixon. I work at Appalachian Citizens Law Center. We're based in uh, Whitesburg in eastern Kentucky. And I do policy and organizing work at Appalachian Citizens Law Center. And uh, part of that work has been, more recently, getting involved in economic transition and economic development work here in Appalachia and here in eastern Kentucky. The... Uh, Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act passed in 1977, and when Congress passed that legislation, it did two main things. It regulated on the federal level coal mining moving forward. And the second thing that it did was, was created policy and a program at the federal government to address some of the problems from past coal mining before that legislation was created. And one of those programs was the Abandoned Mine Land Program. And that federal program cleans up all of the abandoned coal mines, or I should say land and water, that is negatively impacted by abandoned coal mines uh, throughout the country. And, uh, and I should say the only coal mines that apply to that, specific, to that specific program, the AML program, are those that were abandoned prior to the passage of that legislation. Moving forward, coal companies and state regulators were supposed to address reclamation a lot better than they had previously. Now, it hasn't always worked out that way, but um, the AML program specifically applies to pre-77 land and water negatively damaged by coal mine. And um, a lot of reclamation has happened, 
um, through, you know, the, the funding mechanism for that program is a per ton fee on coal mining to the abandoned mine land fee. And a lot of that money has gone to cleaning up these sites. But there's been some money that has stayed in the federal government, in kind of the federal coffers, little by little every year since 1977. And over four decades now, there's a pot of money that has built up. And that's called the Abandoned Mine Land Trust Fund, and that sits at about $2.5 billion right now. And that is where a lot of people see opportunity to distribute that money across the country, clean up a lot of the sites that still haven't been cleaned up yet, put people to work doing that, and pursue development projects on and around those sites once they're cleaned up. So Eric mentioned the, uh, the Abandoned Mine Land Fund. Um, which has uh, $2 billion sitting in a, a sunset fund right now for when that program starts to wind down. And the idea behind the Reclaim Act is to take half of that uh, or $1 billion and release it uh, now instead of, you know, in sometime in the future. Um, but to release that now for abandoned mine land cleanup and economic development where those two overlap. Uh, and that was an idea that, that first took shape um, in the Power Plus plan uh, from the Obama administration. And then uh, the Reclaim Act was introduced by Hal Rogers in 2016. Yeah. Um, and requires um, Congress to pass it in order to, to become law and release that funding. Um, you know, as Reclaim is working through the, the congressional process, um, the AML pilot fund was um, established just through the appropriations process um, through Congressman Rogers' leadership, mostly. Um, and that takes that same idea of um, abandoned mine land reclamation and economic development nexus, but funds it through um, general treasury funds. So it, that's money that's available now and has been for the last three years. So the, the goal of, of the coalition is really to help... Um, help communities think up and implement uh, and get funded uh, innovative reclamation projects. Uh, uh, so it's economic development that it's rooted in um, sustainable economic principles and rooted in community need and what's best for the community instead of kind of bringing in these things that are definitely not what um, we're going to get us out of the mess. Anything else you want to say on that? Well, I do think it's important to, you know, think through the AML pilot program, the Reclaim Act, you know, to talk about those funding mechanisms. But at the same time, I actually think that the most important takeaway and point of this report is about the type of development that we can and need to do here in the region. Um, so... You know, we can talk about the funding mechanisms that might make that happen, and maybe those change over time, but we have for a long time pursued development in the region that looks like trying to recruit large businesses or corporations to come here, and oftentimes they don't, or when they do, they're here for a little while and then they leave, or other types of extractive industry that extract a variety of things. Um, some of that is environmental damage and, and environmental extraction. Some of it is, is the way that it's financed and it extracts wealth and income out of the region to other places. So, um, and, and also those traditional types of development often don't start with what we have. They don't, they don't start with 
by looking around our community and identifying you know what we have that's special here and what are our assets and then building on those and to me the the fundamental takeaway from this report is you can look at the the types of economic development that we need to do here and build on here and pursue development in a way that's not extractive or that is at least a lot better than what we've been doing and a step towards what we really need to do and that's possible that is possible here. I mean, a lot of people will tell you that economic development like that isn't realistic or practical, but I think what we're trying to demonstrate with this report, and some, you know, some of these have been funded already, is that they, you know, that is a realistic approach to how to pursue community and economic development in this place. And the particulars you know, or the assets that, that I'm talking about here with uh, the projects in this report are you know, what we call innovative mine reclamation. So right now we have a lot of these uh, land, this land and water that's damaged by coal mining, and that's a liability right now. I mean, it's a threat to public health and safety. It impedes economic development because people don't want to live and work in a place or start a business in a place that is dangerous or unhealthy. Um, and it takes those liabilities and creates, you know, and those are kind of specific to this place. You don't have those everywhere, right? And it creates out of them assets. You know, we can, cl- we can actually put people to work cleaning those up, creating healthier, cleaner uh, communities, and then doing something with them afterwards, which, you know, these projects have future economic development kind of pieces tied to them as well. Interest in diversifying our regional economy has greatly increased as the coal industry has continued to decline. Several years ago, Appalachian Voices began to look for model projects in southwestern Virginia that could use reclamation funds and have long-term economic benefits. Adam Wells reports. There was this interesting uh, disconnect between the reality on the ground in southwest Virginia and the coal fields and what politicians were saying um, in D.C., and this was still, you know, the Obama administration, and, and the, the war on coal was allegedly in, in full swing. And so um, what D.C. politicians were saying was that, well, the folks don't want to see innovative use of AML. Like, that's a bad idea. The Power Plus plan is garbage, and we're never going to pass it. Um, and we knew that the, the reality on the ground here was that um, no matter what people's political persuasion is, like, we need economic redevelopment desperately and that really urgent need allowed people to think differently and in new ways about um what we should do and so that there is like this kind of bipartisan or really non just apolitical support for investments in Appalachia Uh, and so we organized uh, localities across Appalachia to pass resolutions of support in favor of of the power plus plan uh, which had that one of the key elements was uh, this funding for AML so kind of in the, the wake of that, um, you know, as support was mounting, we realized that we needed to kind of demonstrate that the AML funding could be used for innovative reclamation. That was an idea that, that had, you know, that shovel-ready ideas. Uh, and so um, in Southwest Virginia, Appalachian Voices put together this report uh, that found um, about 15 projects um, across our seven counties um, that would be ideal candidates for um, for the Reclaim Act funding, and some of those ideas were, uh, you know, very well thought out. Kind of already had their own legs, um, 
and others were, were more like hypothetical what ifs, um, just to kind of proof of concept and demonstrate you know, what it, what it could look like. Um, but we put that report together and released it um, in uh, 2016. And you know, so the goal there was to demonstrate and build support for the Reclaim Act, um, kind of prove that in Southwest Virginia we were you know, ready to spend that money and, and just if you just give it to us, we can spend it. And then the, the third goal was to kind of provide a, a concept in Southwest Virginia that could be expanded to the whole region um, because certainly it's not just a Southwest Virginia thing. And so uh, as momentum grew behind the Reclaim Act, um, there became more interest from across the region to, to do um, a, a broader study. Uh, and we were approached by some funders who were interested in, in funding that. And so the Reclaim Act Palachi Coalition kind of emerged out of that. And the report that Eric's been mentioning um, is now kind of a regional version of that one that we did in Southwest Virginia. Uh, and this time we've um, looked at five projects per state focusing really on, on the ones that have the most legs and are the most likely to be funded. And part of the work that we do is not just like highlight these projects, but work with partners to develop proposals to the individual state agencies so that they can get funded. And we've been successful already in some of that and hope to see more success in the future. The Virginia projects included in the report run the gamut from high-value farming to solar installations to recreational developments to community revitalization. Adam was especially excited about several. So uh, the one that, that comes immediately to mind that, that's really, I think, all of these things coming together the best um, is a project in the community of Daint, which is um, just to the north of uh, St. Paul in Russell County. Um, and Daint is kind of, when you imagine, you know, a hard-on-its-luck uh, coal community in southwest Virginia, Dane is kind of, is that, you know, is the center of economic activity when coal was good, and, and now it's, you know, there's not a gas station or a place to buy food anywhere in town. Um, but there's still a tremendous sense of pride uh, in, in, from the folks that live there. And um, really in the last few years, a, a strong and really well-organized effort to um, kind of latch on to uh, the place-based development that's been going around, been going on around uh, Daint uh, in St. Paul along the Clinch River, and really um, you know bring bring that just up the road a little bit into Daint. We've done two proposals um, both years uh, with uh, the Daint Community Association, and uh, the one that's up for uh, I guess review right now by DMME would fund um, some walking trails around um, kind of around the periphery of the community that also intersect with uh, old mine portals that need to be sealed up uh, and that tie back into kind of the heart of um, their redevelopment efforts around the RD Lee School, which they want to transform into an ecological campus. Um, and then uh, just some other like downtown revitalization efforts that are part of a comprehensive plan that the community association put together in collaboration uh, with Virginia Tech. And so there's just a, a lot of layers to this one. Uh, there's also potential for an EPA Brownfields grant to help um, with the school uh, redevelopment. Um, so, you know, different layers of resources and different layers of funding that, that are going into that. And I think um, you know, if I had to bet, I'd, I'd bet that, that one, some part of that one's going to get funded. It just is a matter of, of when, but there's just so much, such a good concept that's kind of been being nourished over the last few years, and it's just a good story. I think it'll 
get funded. I mean, it just sounds so community-based and uh, one-step-at-a-time kind of project. Yeah, and, you know, they're really, what they're trying to leverage is, is their history um, as being the, the center of uh, the Clinchfield Coal Company. Uh, and they've already got a, a museum there that actually draws people from all over the place. Um, hmm. and so that's kind of like their starting point. Um, but still very much, you know, in... in the meetings that I've been at, um, there's this awareness that like the, this history is is really rich and valuable, but they don't just want to be a, a backward-looking town. That you know they want to be looking forward as well. Um, a really cool project we worked on um, for this funding cycle in Virginia, uh, ecotourism-wise, was at the um, Flanagan Marina, which is the, the only marina that services uh, the uh, the Flanagan Dam uh, reservoir, and there. Just a few years ago, this was like a rundown marina that, you know, was basically a boat ramp and a place to park your truck and was purchased by uh, some folks from Dickinson County who saw it as a really good business opportunity. And uh, in the first year, it took this marina that was, you know, losing money every year, uh, and now they're making money every year. They put in a really cool inflatable aqua park uh, and got a, a ABC license, so now they're, they're the second uh, restaurant in uh, Dickinson County where you can go and get a beer. Um and so there was an AML high wall uh, really just adjacent to this marina, and what the business owner wants to do is put in a, a campground and some rustic cabins, uh, do some high wall stabilization, and then with the, the bench that's remaining is put in cabins and a, a campground there. Um, so if, that's a, it's a really great idea, and I think it, it is you know, a very fundable proposition. If it doesn't get funded this year, I hope you know, that we can work together again to reapply for funding next year or that some investor will hear this on the radio and (laughs) want to invest in Dickinson County. That was Adam Wells from Appalachian Voices. The report includes five projects in Kentucky. One is developing a modern energy program at Arley Boggs Elementary School in Eola in a heavily mined area of Letcher County. The school gained regional attention for its student-led efforts to reduce energy costs with solar power. They are now proposing to scale up. Sherry Sexton is the 21st Century Coordinator and Energy Manager for Letcher County Schools and helped write the proposal. With uh, our energy funding, you know, we had a grant that funded my position as Energy Manager. Um, we set up school teams to look at energy and that a teacher would lead a group of students and they'd look at different ways they could cut back on their usage at the school. And so their energy team at the school came up with this idea of uh, just running like uh, charging computers with a solar panel. And so they got one and uh, hooked that up and so they could charge a few things with it. But then they realized they're going to have to have a lot more if they're going to do more than that. Um, through that last story that was done about them and their project, we'd gotten some extra funding from just donors, people that had called. And so they've gotten two more panels. And so, you know, it's just moving along really well. But if we're ever going to do have any major impact, we're going to have to have a lot more funding to put in a solar array. And so that's where we came up with the idea of using abandoned mine lands money, you know, because the school is located with abandoned mine land all around. So there's this great field right across from the school that'll be perfect for putting in a solar array. And so we're just really hoping this funding will come through. The first solar array that we're trying to get funding for is just 42 kilowatts. So that would help cut back on the usage at the school, on their cost. It's our plan to just keep expanding it till we get to the point that we 
provide enough electricity for the school and then can sell electricity back to the grid. So, you know, that would be a great project. Uh, and the bigger it gets, we'd also like to do some, like, little education programs, bring in students from other schools and let them see how a solar array works, uh, get them more excited about more ways to conserve on energy, uh, have renewable energy sources, you know, especially now that coal is a thing of the past for us. Just that we really need to be thinking about the future and what possible new ideas we can come up with. Uh, you know, we know that coal is not going to be back the way it used to be, so we have to be real creative about what is our future going to look like. Another Kentucky project is the Affordable Green Energy Subdivision in Allays, Kentucky, which is being led by the Housing Development Alliance. I visited Hazard to talk with HDA Director Scott McReynolds and Timothy Baker, Director of Development and Communications. Here is Scott, followed by Timothy. So our work is really about using the power of housing to transform lives and build a better future for the community. And we do that by building houses and making people um, homeowners and allowing them to become homeowners and allowing them to build that asset. Of course, you know, when you build a house, you put people to work. When people are working, they're paying taxes. When there's taxes, so there's this whole kind of virtuous cycle that comes about from housing. And so we build houses, we repair houses, and then we also operate some rental units. We work in four counties, um, Perry, Knott, Leslie, and Breathitt counties. Um, we're based in Hazard, and that's historically where, so we, we tend to do more work, of course, in Perry County. And this particular project is um, to an old abandoned strip mall that's a real community eyesore. Um, and it's one of those pieces of property that nobody can, it, economically, it's not viable to re, um, rejuvenate, to put it back on the market. Um, you know, it's going to cost more to do it than it's worth in a pure economic sense. And, that, you know, that we have that problem in all of our downtowns. We have these old buildings. So what we're trying to do is bring some, some grant resources in in order to make it an economically feasible project. So, yeah, the, the project, of course, will be a part, uh, in part, I guess, some downtown revitalization. It's located down to the... Um, the area right outside of Hazard, Kentucky, but it's also a great opportunity uh, for the Housing Development Alliance to kind of bring some other programming in and, and work with uh, the local community college, HCTC, uh, train their students, as well as rejuvenate that area. We can build and utilize some alternative energy sources that's not really common in this area. So we're doing a lot of multifaceted things with this particular project, and we think it'll have some great success, not only uh, for affordable housing in our community, but for the entire community in general. So describe for me the project a little bit. So currently, you know, there's uh, the site, and it is this really just the walls and roof of an old strip mall. It's It's been graffitied. All the glass is broken out. Trees are growing up um, full of trash. I mean, it's really uh, an eyesore, a nuisance, a and a danger to the community, and probably a health hazard. I'm sure there's vermin living in there. Um, and so what the project would involve is buying that, demolishing it, um, and replacing that with a 15-unit subdivision. Um, it would be home ownership, so we would build and sell 15 houses. They would, as Timothy mentioned, some of the construction would be done with the uh, community college students, giving them some real-world experience. 
Um, and then, of course, also the rest of the construction would be done by professional carpenters. So, again, putting people to work, buying those local materials. Um, one of the features is we want the houses to be near net zero. Um, so they're going to be an energy efficient house to begin with. Probably um, the typical house would use 50 to 60 percent of the electricity you would expect a new home to build use um, if you build it just to code. And then we're going to put on top of that rooftop solar, which will then lower the usage down to around 10 percent or less of a house. Um, and that's even some economic development in itself because those people, instead of paying a $150, $200 electric bill, might have a $50 electric bill. Well, that's $100, $150 more in their pocket that they can spend locally. Um, if we're successful in getting the AML project, one exciting is that this is going to be um, it's mixed income, so workforce housing. So we'll have a range of incomes from um, people... Um, you know, quote-unquote low-income folks who are below that kind of 80% uh, median income threshold. Uh, but it would also could just be, you know, people who um, have, a, have a pretty good job but just not quite good enough to go to a local bank and buy the $150,000, $175,000 houses that it's kind of the bottom of what's being built in Hazard. The project is also about bringing that community back to life in a sense. Um, there's a lot of facilities or, or buildings right now that are dilapidated and just not being used in that community and we think by putting 15 uh, households or families in that uh, neighborhood then that's really going to generate hopefully some small businesses may be attracted to that area and things like that uh, but the program also is going to do some infrastructure um, additions in that community and, and probably close to four million dollars when it's all said and done so that alone is a big tax uh, help in the future. And I know a, another big thing, especially region-wide, is attracting businesses and commerce into the area. And there's a saying out there that, that I use quite frequently is, housing attracts people and people attract businesses. So there's something I think to be said about having those downtown areas that are nice and well-built and, and um, you know, can sustain families. So we hope all of that contributes to, to the growth of the, the community. Another interesting factor is for, for a long time we had really cheap electricity, so nobody really worried about energy efficiency. So a lot of the, the older homes we have are just energy hogs. And so somebody might be able to afford a payment, but they wouldn't be able to afford to buy that house because it's going to have a $500 electric bill. So this is an opportunity to kind of um, demonstrate what's possible. And that's kind of a... A normal thing that we hear from our rehab clients right now is, you know, all oh, the house payments. Um, it, it's a it's a real thing to convince someone that hey, you can afford a three hundred or four hundred dollar house payment if your electric cost is down around that seventy five hundred dollar mark. Yeah. But I think people have just gotten so used to it's winter time. Here comes that three hundred fifty dollar electric bill. So yeah, and there are you know, there's almost no solar in the area. I know that um, we did. Th what may have been the first solar house in Perry County. Um, and, and so it's an opportunity just to really to introduce that to the community, um, see, uh, demonstrate that it is feasible, that it works, that it really is a cost savings in the long run. And, um, you know, hopefully it can kind of build the market uh, for some solar energy. 
you know, there's an opportunity to put 15 uh, projects on these houses, these solar projects on these houses. And we're hoping that that will even drive that local entrepreneurial spirit, maybe, that somebody who maybe is already an electrician that can get this uh, national certification. Uh, next thing you know, they're doing this and they're bringing that access to affordable solar into our community closer by. Uh, you know, when we done our first one, we had to outsource a little bit outside the region. And to be able to have a local market, you know, that cuts that price down, which makes everything more affordable. So that's another really exciting thing I, I think I'm looking forward to. Developing a viable and strong housing market in the coal fields for builders and buyers has been a challenge. Scott explained how the subsidies that AML funds could provide could help turn that around. Obviously, if somebody's buying a house, they need the access to a mortgage. Uh, one of the interesting things is we have, there are programs out there that provide pretty good mortgages. Um, our big challenge is we, we, have two, we have two kind of challenges when we try to put people into home ownership. One is what we call the uh, development gap or the appraisal gap. And like, for example, these houses will probably cost more to build and develop than they appraise for. And so um, nobody wants to be underwater, so we need to come up with, and the AML would provide that little bit of subsidy um, that would enable us to sell these houses. We then also have what's kind of this affordability gap. So even if we can sell a house for the appraised value, right, it costs 140 to build, it appraises for 125 we get a little AML money to sell it for 125 the person who's buying it may only be able to afford 110 so now we've got, so we need another little set of subsidy. So the, I feel like we have a broken market. And so before we can even really talk about spending like investment, we almost need that subsidy piece to help get the market going. And, and I think that's another benefit of this project is, you know, if we're able to build some houses and get them on the market, um, then that opens up the opportunity for the next builder who wants to build a house he or she could use our houses as comparables on the appraisal and um, hopefully get a better appraiser, appraisal and that would allow them to build the house. The single biggest limiting factor we have is the availability of subsidy. Um, we build, currently we're doing about 17 to 20 houses a year, we repair 50. The, the need for our services is double, triple, quadruple that. And the reason we're not building 40, 60, 80 houses a year is simply the lack of subsidy. Um, and so one of the exciting things about this is, is it's a way of um, getting access to some more subsidy and doing more work. Um, you know, it's great to build 20 houses a year, but it'd be great to build 30 because you put more carpenters to work. You're buying more two-by-fours from the local lumber yard, um, et cetera. You know, you're adding to the tax base more often. So it's all those benefits that come. The affordable green energy subdivision is projected to cost slightly over $2 million. That will result in total economic activity valued at $4.4 million. It would provide $1,165,000 in earnings to employees and support 27 full and part-time jobs. Scott McReynolds pointed out other benefits as well. And there, there is a study, um, and I wish I could remember, somebody like Harvard, Yale, some respectable institution, and they did a mental health study, and they went into inner city areas, 
and they did a mental health survey, and then they cleaned up vacant lots. They didn't do anything, you know, they didn't do anything elaborate. They didn't build new houses there. They just cleaned them up, and then they redid the mental health survey, and they found that just the act of cleaning up the community improved folks' mental health, their outlook, their optimism. So, you know, there are families that live around these, this subdivision, this uh, strip mall now, this abandoned place, and so to go in there and take it from this real eyesore nuisance status to this beautiful new community, um, you know, has an opportunity. One of the things that, that I think we as a, a community have lost sometimes is, is a little bit of hope. Um, you know, this is the way things are, this is the way they are always are going to be, and this is an opportunity to say, no, we can have a better future. So what do you all think of the whole, this reclaim idea, the overall concept you know it, it's it's simply brilliant I mean and I mean that both in the term that I think it's brilliant but also in the terms that I think it's it's pretty simple I mean we have, we're an area where you have all of these people who know how to run equipment and move earth and do all the work you need to do to reclaim who are suddenly out of job because of the downturn in the coal economy so this is a way to put them back to work at the same time that we're improving sites and developing sites for future uses. And um, it just makes so much sense. I, it's like I said, I think it's just kind of, it's simple and brilliant at the same time. That was Scott McReynolds and Timothy Baker from the Housing Development Alliance in Hazard, Kentucky. Our final project from the report is Recreate, or Reclaiming the Cheat River as an Economic Asset Through Trail Enhancement. Local organization Friends of the Cheat was recently awarded $3 million from the West Virginia AML pilot program for this work. My name is Amanda Pitzer. I'm the executive director of Friends of the Cheat. We are a nonprofit watershed group focused on the Cheat River watershed, um, which is in north central, central, north central West Virginia. Our offices are located in Kingwood, which is in Preston County. West Virginia, which is uh, what we like to think of as the, the heart of uh, West Virginia abandoned mine land territory. Uh, most of our mining occurred pre-law before 1977, and Friends of the Cheat has been working for 25 years now. This will be our, our 25th year um, to clean up pollution ourselves through the development of um, pollution abatement systems, uh, as well as um, partnering with state and federal agencies and really being the squeaky wheel um, to get acid mine drainage in our community cleaned up. And in uh, 1995, the Cheat was one of America's most endangered rivers. Um, that's that's a, a list put out by the uh, national nonprofit American Rivers. So in 95, the Cheat was essentially dead. We, we made it on the top 10 list. <laughs> and uh, in 2012, we're proud to say that the Cheat River main stem was removed from the state's list of impaired waters for pH impairment. So to the layperson, what that means is essentially water quality in the main stem has improved enough to support fish. And we actually um, just this uh, spring and summer got reports of walleye spawning up from Cheat Lake um, up into the Cheat River Canyon, which is a great sign because walleye are pollution-sensitive fish. So this isn't new, but now we are dovetailing um, recreation and kind of the, the community development and revitalization work in with our um, pollution abatement. The upper Freeport coal seam is the, the main seam that was mined here. Again, 
um, you know, as early as the, the late 1800s into the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. And um, I've heard some, I've heard geologists uh, and and industry, you know, kind of experts murmur that they wonder if the money that was made mining the upper Freeport coal seam actually even touches the money that uh, we've invested in land and water reclamation. It's uh, high in pyrite. You know, the, the upper Freeport coal seam is layered with uh, geology that's rich in pyrite, which is an acid-producing rock. So you remove the, the coal around it and you leave the pyrite, and we have some of the, the biggest and baddest AMD seeps out there. <laughs> uh, there's one stream in particular, Sticky Run, that... Um, the DEP and and we we believe is probably one of the most con- concentrated AMD sources, uh, if not in the state, but really in the whole region. So yeah, we've we've got some of the worst water out there. We don't have the mountaintop mining issues um, and the selenium issues that we see in the at least in the southern coal fields, but um, the water quality impacts um, were certainly devastating and. And as a result, you know, the industry kind of pulled out, you know, we're kind of, we also kind of think we're a bit of the forgotten part of the coal fields because we are further away. And, and a lot of, a lot of um, people think like, oh, well, you're close to Morgantown and, and you're close to Pittsburgh, but we're still reeling. Um, and part of that was the one-two punch of the flood of 1985, um, really devastated the communities of um, Parsons, Rollsburg, Albright, all through the Cheat River Valley and the surrounding areas. So as the mining industry was, you know, on its last leg, the flood came through and just, demo- you know, just wiped everything else out. So we're struggling to recover. Um, we, we, we are. Tell me a little bit. You're, you're now trying to deal with, um, as you said, the sort of economic development issues in addition to mm-hmm. as part of um, the process of cleaning up. So talk a little bit about your project, what you're hoping mm-hmm. here. Yeah, we say now, but this is a project that's been in the works for 15 years. Um, so back in the early O's, um, Morgantown had just started or had just begun uh, breaking ground and seen the popularity of their rail trail system in uh, the Deckers Creek Trail and the Caperton Trail and there were some folks in in our area here that um, said, well, we want that too. You know, the cheat is beautiful and, and there's um, a lot of abandoned railroads. Why don't, why don't we work towards a system of interconnected trails as well? So in the early O's, um, the, the director before me got involved in this kind of volunteer committee of just people who were starting to think about how we would um, – build trails and, and really build, rebuild our outdoor recreation community. Um, I say rebuild because the Cheat was the first commercially rafted river in West Virginia. Many of the raft guides um, that, you know, moved on to the gully or um, went up to the Yakagani, they started on the Cheat. They got, they got trained on the Cheat. So um, when the pollution got really, really bad in the 90s, um, you know, they, they went elsewhere. So... We really wanted to start taking steps to bring people back to the river. And that first group of people in the early O's was just called the Preston Rail Trail Committee. And if anyone out there who's ever been involved in a rail trail project or any project involving a railroad <laughs> knows that these um, things take years to 
to advance. And when this group first approached CSX, um, who was the, the former owner of that quarter, when they first approached CSX to try and buy it, CSX said they wanted $1.6 million. And it really deflated, you know, it really kind of deflated their um, their enthusiasm right away. They thought, oh, we're never, we're never going to be able to do this. We can't, we can't raise $1.6 million. Well, with patience and persistence, <laughs> about 10 years later, maybe 12, in 2014, we purchased that same corridor for $95,000. <laughs> and uh, about 10 miles is our first piece that we're working on. And it took us 12 years to negotiate with CSX and secure the money and um, one of the reasons that CSX came down on price and one of the other benefits of this project is we're going to be cleaning up some contaminated soils along the corridor. Um, this is not uncommon for railroads. You know, the railroad ties were treated in creosote, so years of um, leaching out. You know, we, we have arsenic and some petroleum-contaminated soils that we will abate as part of this trail construction. So we, we bought the property and then we needed, now we need money to construct. But as a nonprofit, um, we don't have access to the big money that a lot of the municipalities um, can get to build these projects. So we were looking at, you know, potentially 10 more years to build this trail in segments. And we were committed to doing that. And we, we you know, we were, we're in for the long haul. But when the opportunity came um, for the, what West Virginia, they're calling it the AML pilot. I just knew that this was the perfect fit, but this is it. This is how we're going to do it. Not only are we going to build this trail and clean up the soils, but we're going to bring the other piece that the community needs, which is the community development and the training and marketing and business plans to eventually, we know, again, this is a long-term process, but we got to start somewhere to eventually try and build an economy around the trail and around outdoor recreation here. This is one of the tools in our toolbox here in Preston County as far as economic revitalization and trying to diversify our economy away from extraction. There, there really hasn't been anything that's replaced coal here at all. So we're hoping to um, use the AML pilot money to not only construct the trail, but to launch our Trail Town program. And the Trail Town program works with community members to help them identify needs in their community around um, trail development and outdoor recreation economy, and then helps those folks um, build business plans, market, and just learn the language. You know, folks here in Preston County, you know, we're not used to, to um, hosting tourists, you know, so just something as simple as well, what does a trail rider need or like? Do they want to stay at a hotel? Do they want to stay at a B&B? Do they want to camp? What kind of food do they like? Um, what kind of other activities are they going to be interested in? And how can we bring those and offer those so when folks are riding their bikes through Rollsburg or through Kingwood, they stop. They stop and they check out the town and they see the other things that community has to offer. And maybe it's just a visit. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe they'll move and bring their family. So this is a this is a long game, and we're so excited. We've been playing defense for so for 25 years. You know, we've been cleaning up pollution, 
really play in the defense. And now we finally have an offense. We have finally have something positive that we can work towards as opposed to just clean up the mess. Um, so it's an, it's a, it's really the next chapter for our work and people in our community are so excited. Amanda added that in addition to building a trail, this funding will allow Friends of the Cheat to experiment with remedies for cleaning up the environmental hazards that continue to pollute the river. Um, Friends of the Cheat also works towards pollution cleanup. So here in West Virginia, and I believe in many other states, our abandoned mine lands program does not have to deal with water. They don't have to treat the water. So we've made great strides in, of course, cleaning up AMD, but we still have many tributaries that are still dead. They're still contributing pollution to the main stem. Although the main stem is is healthy and able to dilute that, these tribs are still dead. And our biggest source of pollution now to the Cheat River is a site called the Lick Run Portals, which is on Lick Run, which is a, a tributary to the Cheat that comes in right by our rail trail. One of the components of our Recreate project is we are actually going to do a pollution uh, remediation experiment or bench test at the Lick Run Portals. With our typical funds, we can't do experiments. we got to do something that works. This money is going to allow us to see how much good we can actually do at Lickeron. And, and what I mean is that site is discharging anywhere from 200 to 500 gallons per minute of water with a pH of 2.8 <laughs> and iron concentrations so chock full of iron that we couldn't use our, our regular technologies to remediate that site. Our regular technologies are what we call passive treatment. There's no moving parts. Um, there's no uh, re- real O&M. There's no real operations and maintenance. So typically we go in and we spend maybe two hundred fifty to $400,000 to build a system that will passively treat the water. The liquor and portal site is so polluted and the volume of water is so high, passive treatment will not work. It won't touch it. So... The experiment will involve um, these units. They're called a metal remover removal units. It's a, it's a patented technology. We're working with a special consultant on this, and we're going to take a part of that flow, not all 300 gallons, but we're going to take a part of it, and we're going to see what we can do. And if the bench trials work as expected, we're going to ramp it up, and we're going to see if in our next phase we could actually build a treatment system there um, to remove and knock out the number one source of pollution to the cheat. So we're super, we're very excited about that as well. That's not a, a, a typical component of these projects, but it's really important to us to because the trail crosses four uh, polluted streams. So we want to give context to the users as to what's going on. So the, the experiment signage, special tours. Um, we're going to build an outdoor learning park at the Lick Run Portal site. So we're not trying to hide our history. Um, we're trying to learn from it and get people up there and say, hey, this is, this is how we got to where we are. And, and here's, um, you know, kind of the, the poor decision making that led us there. We hope to, to teach, to show that, to teach that lesson of 
you know, we can do better. That was Amanda Pitzer, executive director of Friends of the Cheat in Preston County, West Virginia. I asked Eric Dixon from Appalachian Citizens Law Center about what's next for this grassroots effort from people throughout the region to pass the Reclaim Act and spur more innovative economic development. Those are some thoughts on the AML pilot program. And the Reclaim Act is very linked. I mean, they stem from the same idea. And like I said, like I said earlier, I think the most important thing about this whole conversation is the fact that the idea of development that it, that looks different from traditional development in the region and that that cleans up uh, dangerous and dirty land and water and creates opportunity out of it, that idea is sound. That idea we've demonstrated is practical. It has benefits for the region. We need to continue to invest in projects like that and build out projects like that across the region. Um, so I think that is a really important thing to take away, and that is the idea that is behind the Reclaim Act, which um, was in the last Congress. It made its way through um, the House Natural Resources Committee, to, despite some really strong opposition from the coal industry, um, which was a huge victory. And uh, it kind of stalled out after that, and now it'll need to be reintroduced because we're in a new Congress, and you just you have to introduce legislation at the beginning of every two years. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. We're at the beginning of 2019. And I think those of us who are, uh, you know, engaged in that are looking forward to, um, you know, moving that bill and, and having it be introduced and making sure that the language is good and learning from the lessons of the work that's happening right now in the region. And the, um, the bills in their various incarnations have received a lot of support, I understand, from local bodies, individuals and government bodies throughout the region. It's they, been pretty remarkable. Yeah, I think that is a very very exciting story that we could do a whole mountain talk on. Maybe we should sometime. <laughs> um, but the the idea of that became the Reclaim Act, it did it saw its first formal iteration in the Power Plus plan that Adam mentioned. Um, but even before that it was an idea in the minds of people here. And people in the region saw it as uh, a really big opportunity and then organized around it. And they got their, once the Power Plus plan was introduced, they they got their local governments to basically send a formal signal to Congress that they want Congress to pass legislation doing, uh, doing what the Reclaim Act would do. And that that sort of formal signal signal was a whole bunch of resolutions that local governments passed first here, right here in the city of Norton, first here in Norton, and then uh, across Kentucky and the rest of the region. And now um, there was like a wave of about thirty that passed in 2015, and now there's been some more organizing that's happened uh, around the Reclaim Act and other related issues like uh, the Black Lung Disability Trust Fund and that sort of thing, and there have been another wave of resolutions. Not all of them have been about reclaim, but there's been in this wave another about 30 resolutions have passed. So uh, I just say that to underline the point that there is very strong local support for the idea of not only cleaning up abandoned coal mines and creating opportunity out of them, but of specifically of these pieces of legislation. And um, hopefully Congress will will take action and actually make that a reality 
um, sooner rather than later. Adam Wells is optimistic about these efforts to build a sustainable economy and livable communities. We're starting to, to see successes. Uh, I mean, the truth is that there's never going to be a single employer. It's Anywhere you go in the country, it's hard to find jobs like coal jobs. I think, you know, we got used to them in the region and want to see them come back for obvious reasons. But it's part of this growing trend of, you know, the loss of manufacturing and industrial jobs like that all over the place. And I think just people are, are becoming, you know, more used to that reality. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're taking this approach to economic development that we, we don't want a single silver bullet thing to come in and, and rescue mm-hmm. us because that's what got us in, in the trouble in the first place. Um, and so, like, these ecotourism jobs that we've been talking about, you know, they don't pay a lot as much, especially compared to coal mining jobs. Um, but a few people can still make a living, and if we make a living for a few people, then that's headed in the right direction. Um, it, so that's good in itself, but then I think what else we're doing with especially the like quality of life stuff and the ecotourism, it, you know, we can attract people to our region, and that's great, but we also want to make it good for people to, to stay and, and live here too. And I think the more we can, you know, in appropriate ways develop the, the natural assets that we have for, for recreation, the easier it's going to be for young people to want to stick around and create uh, their own businesses here. Um, so it's kind of like a, a one-two punch or one-two back rub. Doesn't have to be violent. <laughs> <laughs> we have been talking about a report recently released by the Reclaiming Appalachia Coalition that provides case studies of 20 possible reclamation and redevelopment projects in five Appalachian states. You can find the report online by searching for Many Voices, Many Solutions, Innovative Mine Reclamation in Central Appalachia. Thanks to Eric Dixon, Adam Wells, Sherry Sexton, Scott McReynolds, Timothy Baker, and Amanda Pitzer for sharing their work with us. This story and others about diversifying our Appalachian economy are available online at makingconnectionsnews.org. This is Mimi Pickering reporting for WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Making Connections is brought to you by WMMT Mountain Community Radio. Find out more at makingconnectionsnews.org.